and welcome to Philosophy Mixed, the Texas State Philosophy Department and KTSW's podcast series on philosophy and the nature of things. My name is Kimberly Clay. I'm an executive producer at KTSW 89.9, and I'm joined by Rebecca Farinas, a professor in the Texas State Philosophy Department. We're both welcoming you to a new program that highlights the ongoing philosophy dialogue series, and we're happy to be able to collaborate with Professor Craig Hanks, who is the head of the philosophy department, and Joanne Carson, who, along with Vince Luigi, developed the dialogue series for over 22 years. So it's been going on for quite a while now. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for bringing this fresh idea to the community and to campus. And thanks for inviting me to sit in today. I love the way that you put the intro. We are to investigate the nature of things. We hope to present a multi-perspectival series on three contemporary topics concerned with our human condition, race and identity, body and culture, and free speech and deliberative dialogue. It should be fun, should be adventurous, Mm -hmm. we'll see how it goes. And um, if I might add a bit to your intro in respect to the Philosophy Dialogue series, which is the main resource for our guests for the sessions. For 22 years, the Philosophy Department at Texas State has provided a unique model for free, freeing thought Mm through the Philosophy Dialogue series as an open forum for the lively exchange and critical evaluation of diverse ideas. The series enriches the cultural and academic life of the university and community. One way to describe this influential and valuable series is to quote one of the philosophers whose work in American pragmatism has been an ongoing inspiration. In the words of John Dewey, quote, We naturally associate democracy, to be sure, with freedom of action, but freedom of action without freed capacity of thought behind it is only chaos. Wow, that is quite the quote and such a great way to start our topic today. Um, We are centering around the state of race in the 21st century and black identity in the United States. We're actually joined today by Tafari Robertson, a student at Texas State. Hi, my name is Tafari. I'm a senior major in public relations, but I also am the founder of an organization called the Pan-African Action Committee. Um, I work for the University Star. I've worked for KTSW. I've done a little bit of everything, and I'm happy to be here. And we're happy to have you as well. So our topic today is timely. Uh, since we have Black Lives Matter activists mobilizing, we've got Confederate flags and statues of Confederate leaders being removed from public areas, especially on uh, like state-owned grounds, um, like near Capitol buildings, um, and NFL players kneeling for the national anthem. So the topic of racial inequality has really come to the forefront of pretty much everybody's minds as they're looking at what politics and media coverage is doing you know in in today's society every time you turn on the tv it's something new about uh racial inequality basically how has race as a social construct been used politically and culturally in the 21st century so we just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about intersectionality and identity what it means to be a black person in america um especially with it being so just really busy lately with everything going on. Um, it's all kind of coming in, in, in a wave, basically. So 
the question today that we kind of wanted to cover, um, how has race as a social construct been used politically and culturally today? If I could just maybe define um, a term that I'm particularly interested in asking you about, Tafari, because as an activist yourself, yet as a student um, and um, having your kind of your horizons open, um, I'm really interested in your ideas about um, the intersectionality that um, uh, Kimberly mentioned, in that philosophically, um, and some of the important um, huge contributors to the world of philosophy, of course, have been African-American philosophers. And intersectionality is a term that actually came out of uh, philosophies of W.E.B. Du Bois and Elaine Locke. Um, and what they really were able to capture with that term were problems of um, uh, race that were joined with problems of inequality of economic opportunity, imparity in relation to educational practices, gender discrimination, criminality, prejudicial incarceration. So that intersectional aspect, um, as an activist, do you take on the whole burden of those relationships? Um, so on the topic of in intersectionality, what is its importance today? I think the, um, I think one of the most important parts about having conversations like this, especially in, if we're talking about intersectionality and what it means to me, is more about how we interact with each other and how we um, interact with our daily lives because we have to respect that people have different experiences from us, but then we also have to recognize that those experiences have layers and, and things can always be more complex. So there's not really like a, a simple answer, I feel like, to, oh, intersectionality is this, or this is the intersectional experience, right? In the same way that there's not a simple answer to, this is the black experience, this is black identity. It's not monolithic. There's not one thing that I could say. So I can tell you about um, you know, some of the things that I've experienced as a college student, or I could tell you some of the things that I've experienced in my growing up. But even then, there's a lot of um, privilege that I have being, you know, straight, cis, um, relatively middle class in college, that the vast majority of the people that we end up talking about don't have these privileges, and, and sometimes we end up kind of talking around them. So I think it's important to recognize those privileges and realize that that means that there are some times when I should not be the one speaking, you know. But that doesn't that never would stop me from advocating for. And I don't think that changes, you know, my position as an activist. There's, I don't think there's ever a time when you don't get to truthfully advocate for someone and and you know stand up for something you believe in. But I, but I, in my mind, that's totally different from being the voice for people, you know, or telling their story per se. It's really about giving a, a voice to people and, and just kind of trying to empathetically understand mm -hmm. what they're going through, giving them a platform to speak on. And I think that would be the most important part of intersectionality. So 
we are kind of seeing a lot of stuff going on in the media right now with the NFL players protesting, taking a knee during the anthem, uh, people protesting for uh, Confederate monuments to be taken down. Um, There's a lot of really important things going on that we're seeing day to day. Things are changing and, you know, there's kind of a a protest and a counter protest to all of this. But um, I, I just have the question, why is this happening now? Um, we saw the civil rights movement in the 50s, 60s, uh, the 70s. You know, we saw the Black Panther movement as well. But now it's happening in full force. So what would you say is the reason we're seeing it here in 2000, it's starting in 2012? Um, I think that it's, it's, it's sort of a, well, there is an ebb and flow of the way that um, the general masses are moving and what is becomes popular in terms of political activity and they want this to be a sensational moment Uh when in reality if you're looking at just like some of the key moments in history right so so black lives matter uh, in response to police brutality is something that has been a consistent the the difference Mm -hmm. about black lives matter is what it uh this the way it interacted with social media but if you're looking uh, at like the 90s, you've got Rodney King, you've got Mumia Abu Jabbar, you got um, you've got a lot of different figures who are talking about incarceration and talking about you know police brutality. If you're looking at the 80s, you've got you know the the war on drugs, and you've got the AIDS epidemic, and you've got people who are you know very very active in you know in fighting against those things. And, but and it goes all the way back to Amer- the founding of our country mm-hmm. right in many mm-hmm. ways yeah and even yeah and even before and and i and i think it's important to but i, I like your point maybe can you go back to it about creating a sensational event but in a sense that media frenzy kind of passes is that what you're saying and so rather than really think of it as an ongoing you know struggle of liberation um these sensational events um, mm-hmm. uh, maybe cause a firestorm, but then they don't get the results that we need. Or, well, for instance, the Black Lives Matter movement—it's mm-hmm. you know reactionary in a sense, but then in a l- larger sense, it's part of an ongoing struggle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, does the media sensationalize the events in a sense of like a firestorm that will pass and create m- maybe even more passivity um, rather than to really think of um, the movement as something that is m- much more profound? Uh, not more profound, but in an ongoing sense. I think the just the nature of media, especially today, it does create it, it latches onto these sensations. But I don't think it's um, from the media standpoint. I don't think it's super deliberate. It's like okay, and then we end this movement or such and such. I think it's something where they're always trying to like it's it's a natural tendency of you know TV or whatever mm-hmm. media source you're looking at to be trying to move forward so if you've got you know protests that are going on for you know weeks on end and people are coming out and protesting yeah they might get that coverage the first week but after the by the third week they're not going to be covered and i don't think that's something necessarily to blame the media about i don't Mm -hmm. think it should be you know wall-to-wall coverage of the same thing for three weeks because there are a lot of things going on in the world um but 
Um, but I think in other ways, when we see how this, when we see how these like canons are produced, and we see how mm-hmm. you know the way that our political sphere looks at these movements and like tries to pack them in, and they try and pick out certain people to be the heads of it. So if you're looking at like like Black Lives Matter, some of the key figures who you know really come out of that are people like D-Ray and like Sean uh, Sean King and, and some of those folks. But none of those people were the founders of, of Black Lives Matter. The, the founders of Black Lives Matter movement were, were three women, you know, Opal Tometi, Alicia Garza, and Patrice O'Neill, right? And I think, and that's sort of where we start to see, that's where we start to see that deliberacy of picking, you know, certain figures to be the ones who are on TV and to be the mm-hmm. ones who are, you know, at, you know, certain like press conferences and whatnot, but not taking the the actual movement for what it is. And I think it's important as an activist, but also as people who are committed to, you know, this this progress that we do our own, you know, work to to find those voices and amplify them. Right. And and as consumers of media, um, you know, people who watch news every day, I think we should all try to, uh, you know, be more uh, be looking at this in a more broad sense, because, uh, you know, you'll see Black Lives Matter protests being covered for, you know, a couple of weeks and then they move on to um, the next natural disaster or something like happening uh, with other countries um, or a different, you know, subject that's, you know, being covered. Um, and so you know, the Black Lives Matter protest, even if that keeps, uh, if it if it keeps moving on, um, they won't really cover it as much. Like you said, you know, it, they move on to other topics. And then when they come back to another similar movement, like with the, the NFL players taking a knee following Colin Kaepernick, um, it becomes, I guess, for the use of the word that we're using, sensationalized. Um, because as consumers of media, we don't recognize that this has been an ongoing problem. It it kind of seems to the average media consumer that, oh, now they're angry again about something else, like yeah. as if it really did quiet I think, down. I think it's I think that's a really good example, though, of where that media presence does become a little bit toxic because media does have a tendency to, to want to simplify issues and want to make them as palatable as possible. So if you're looking at the take a knee protest, what started out from like a very isolated protest with Colin Kaepernick that was very specifically about police brutality and was about that issue um, within the past couple of weeks became this larger thing that football coaches were participating in, whole teams were participating in, and it was in response to Trump uh, like saying something on that. And it was like, this is like, we don't stand with Trump, but it's like, that's not what this protest is about. But mm-hmm. I think the media really like latched on to that. Well, I, I don't want to say the media so much because it's mm-hmm. that's not really something that exists. There's so many different sources. But but if you're looking at, I guess, our our mainstream uh, like television news sources, that's where they really liked the idea of it not being about an issue that we actually need to address. Mm-hmm. They to think of it as a singular attention. moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they want to it to be a gather pop popular of a pop moment, mm-hmm. right? I think that's so important. I'm wondering, what do you th- uh, think about because, you know, when you have these ongoing um, issues like um, uh, um, the Black Lives Matter and the police brutality um, and racial profiling, uh, that these incidents that are, are so 
horrific, yet they just keep um, um, multiplying. Um, it seems that studies have shown that after reporting for so many times, the general public does lose interest because they just really can't retain the the pressure, the impact. Um, they do move on to other things that they're concerned about in that distant kind of way. And because they don't have your immediacy and they haven't maybe, um, most people um, haven't really connected with some of the meanings of the um, original um, movements of Black Lives Matter and some of the um, un understandings that you have of uh, the causes, the systemic causes. Um, do you think that um, really working with um, a picture of the individual events and the, the people whose um, lives have really been impacted uh, by these situations is helpful for the general citizenship? Do you think that is what can really bring people more on board with promoting programs, policies, and of course, um, legislation to change things? Because the way I view it is I don't think that, not to single out media, but I don't think what is happening with the media is working as far as getting some results, um, especially in, in relation to Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. um, because we keep having terrible events happen. I think um, these individual instances and mm -hmm. individual in, uh, situations that makes a lot of people feel really helpless and, uh, and it really hurts the psyche of a lot of people and that is part of that sensation. So if you, you know, if we're talking about police brutality specifically, I do think it's, it's pretty terrible that, you know, we get so used to seeing footage of dead bodies and we, we are so used to it. And, and it's so okay to show, you know, these really horrid acts of state violence against black people. Um, and then to just have that come up on your stream at any given moment of the day, mm -hmm. you could wake up and I could wake up tomorrow and, and see something like that on my timeline. And I think um, that is a role that is this, this residue of that overall just racism and devaluing of black lives and, and black, it, it reflects that because when you, when you have instances, it was like, oh, you know, such and such white family was murdered on the street. They don't show, you know, bodies. If they do show a crime scene, they blur out the bodies. And it's like, there's this, in some aspects, there's this respect for, okay, the children don't need to see this. But then when it's like this pressing issue of Black Lives Matter and police brutality, it's like, well, look what happened again. And I think, but but that is, again, playing a deliberate role in, in, in the way I see it because, you know, it, it connects to that history of, you know, the visual of black pain and black death and how that does work in terms of our oppression because it scares people. It scares people into silence and it mm -hmm. says, like, this is going to keep happening and this is, and yeah, you're going to see this video, you're gonna feel this video, and then a couple of weeks later, you're going to forget about it. 
the police officer mm-hmm. is going to get off. Right. And, and then there's going to be another, another, another instance. But that's yeah. the message they want us to be, they, mm-hmm. um, that is being perpetuated because that functions in a way that, you know, creates a larger, you know, system of people that's like, okay, I don't want to touch that issue. I'm mm-hmm. just going to try and stay alive. Yeah, people you know? can get very emotionally exhausted by mm-hmm. that very easily, uh, seeing day after day all of this happening. And um, it may not be deliberate, it may be deliberate, but it's kind of telling the these media consumers, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. This happens every day. Yeah. And, and it, it can be uh, pretty depressing for a lot yeah. of people who do really want to uh, take action and, and make a change, but sometimes you do feel hopeless, and I think you you definitely worded that very well. Yeah, and I and I think that uh, with the media, um, it it's not it. We got to ask like what their goal is because I don't know if their goal is to mm-hmm. to find a solution mm-hmm. for these instances, especially when we look at the makeup of our popular media. Our popular media is another thing that is impacted by this overall racism where we do have the people who you know who are in in those spaces of power are not the ones who are being impacted by these stories so they're they're not concerned with you know resolving this issue they might end up being empathetic at some point they might be like wow this is terrible but they're not really they aren't really living within that yeah so they so they don't have the the idea of how do we stop this from happening? Because at the end of the day, it's it's news, you know, and and for them, that's just you know what happens. But we do see differences when you look at you know predominantly black news sources or black media sources like the Atlanta or like um, the Root or you know like Huffington Post Black Voices. The way they report on these things is different because they do have more of a stake in terms of like informing and and they aren't as likely to use these videos and you know and and reproduce that trauma um so i think that's really important you know that um uh, rather than just talking about carving out spaces that uh, you're talking about the participants right the the black news source is there uh, on the ground in the experience uh, 100% and therefore their view is is going to have an authenticity and a uh, um, certain amount of uh, also you know respect of the ongoing problem that people that are you know somewhat detached just could never capture I, I do have one question on that, though, because you bring up some just, I think, really fascinating um, points, uh, and I can tell they're from your experience, but also because you're so uh, knowledgeable about, um, you know, the history of the struggle. And um, in a sense of um, us as a country having almost, from the beginning of our country, um, living with black death and uh, the violence and uh, living with the images, right, from slavery and um, here in the South. Um, living with living the consequences with of slavery, and, really. And not only the consequences, but the actual visual acceptance in mm-hmm. a way that comes from that. I thought that was a fascinating point. Do you think it gives us uh, feeling attitudes um, that maybe can work 
for us, not against us. Um, because, you know, being raised in the South, right, the um, Confederate statues, right, those are visual. They, they embody our spaces, right? And mm -hmm. um, when you grow up white, that means one thing. You know, you grow up black, that means a, a different thing. But to understand the, the problematic history of that symbol now, does that give us a, maybe a, a bond to go forward rather than really just, you know, a way to say, well, now it's time to bring those statues down um, in a way that that perverse symbol could maybe now work for us to, to help us to really try to understand mm -hmm. this problem that is not just a problem for every event, but it's an ongoing yeah, it's systemic, system. problem. Yeah, it's systemic problem. And I, I think where we get our progress together from, where we can come together and where our rallying points are, are not so much in these instances of statues or even like these protests where it's like, okay, well, we'll all protest together. But I think where it really comes to is where we all need to find our humanity and ask, you know, because it is much, it's much deeper than, you know, the death that's happening. It's much deeper than, you know, the, the statues that are still standing. But those are two things that are representative of the larger system that, that is playing that people have to live with every day. And that's almost more terrible. It's just the things that people are just living with every single day of their life that's, you know, chipping away at whole communities and, and that they're just, that, that aren't these sensational topics that aren't really issues at all at this point if we're mm -hmm. talking about, you know, the incarceration uh, of black people or black and Latino people. Um, what that really means is not, you know, on one end it's about, you know, the people who are incarcerated, but on the other end it's about these people who are, you know, completely removed from society and have been deemed, you know, felon criminal. It's like, what does that actually do for our society and, and, and what are we losing, you know, and, and what are we taking you know, from our own humanity by allowing that to happen. I think that's where we rally behind. When we look at, you know, the fact that there's so many homeless people in America or in the United States, but the United States, you know, has all of these resources and claims to be one of the, um, you know, greatest countries in the world. But so we have to find together our humanity to say, you know, what, like, like what is our actual moral standpoint of that? If there are open houses you know, there's more than enough open houses and open spaces for, you know, our homeless population. And it would actually be cheaper to just give them houses than to, you know, incarcerate them and, you know, and, 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 and deal with some of that, you know, other th the way we currently handle our homeless population. We currently handle our, our mentally ill populations and we currently, you know, handle those, um, those situations where it's totally inhumane. Uh, and so I think that's what we, we should rally behind. Yes, we should rally behind, you know, bringing down the Confederate statues, but bringing down a Confederate statue doesn't really mean anything to me if, because that's not a policy change. That's not, you know, we're not taking a step towards humanity. Yeah, we're just kind of like fixing things, but you know, but if we're gonna talk about statues, it gets way more complex than that. Mm -hmm. You know, 
There are Abraham Lincoln statues that need to come down. There are, you know, there's so many, like, that we, there are faces of presidents carved into a, you know, a mountain, you know. A mountain that was sacred to exactly. the Native Americans. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So if we're talking well, about Well, those statues, are symbols, yeah. though, you mm-hmm. know, and so I think that um, I, I really love your point about the everyday experience is really the ground of where the work needs to be done. I just think that's brilliant. Um, But I think these symbols need to come down too. Mm -hmm. When you live every day looking at a symbol, it it becomes ingrained in in the society and in the individuals um, because it's just so in your face all the time. You know, there's a difference between a Confederate symbol being on the courthouse lawn than it is in a museum. It's a completely different context wherever that symbol is. Um, And it definitely changes the way that we view that symbol. And I definitely agree with you that it all starts at an economic level. You know, uh, black people, when they're born as a black person, they don't get the same opportunities. They don't get the the same resources that a white person has. And it's so much harder for them to, uh, you know, reach a a level of... um, you know, what the average American, what the average white American is experiencing. Um, and it is definitely the economic racial and inequality. I, and, I, and, it's, and if we're talking about economics, then it's like, that's capitalism. Like mm-hmm. That's the, the way that capitalism works. Capitalism needs for there to be populations who are suffering in order for there to be a richer population, you know? And they so need to have, uh, capitalism needs desperate consumers exactly but i think that's where identity comes in that's what i wanted to ask we wanted to ask you about also Mm -hmm. you know black identity Mm -hmm. is so strong and and has so many positive things to give to our common culture here in the united states and um uh i don't know if you saw the film um moonlight uh recent uh Uh, Academy Award winning film Mm -hmm. where um, the main characters are definitely involved in this this everydayness Mm -hmm. of um, uh, intersectional problems but their identities of themselves find a way to really become incredibly meaningful to their to the people that they're in relationships with and uh, in a sense uh, to all of us so I just thought maybe we could end on thinking um, about and have your thoughts on um, the richness of uh, black identity maybe as a, a culture um, within the bigger culture of the United States and on the individual um, aspect of uh, the eloquence and bravery and courage that uh, black people bring uh, bring to all of us yeah i think um black identity and black culture are it's such a a a unique experience on the world because you know while we have so many different diaspora and so many diasporic experiences there's something really unique about the black american experience where you know those ties are totally severed there's like no there's 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 not an ancient history of the black American that we are connected to in a certain sense. Like we can make that leap and try and redevelop that connection uh, in Africa. Uh, And I think that's a worthwhile process. But at the same time, there is a very specific culture within 
the black American experience. But I, I would even go as far to say that, you know, if, if you're really considering the, the identity of the United States, if you're really considering what is wholly uh, an American identity, um, you know, you, you gotta look at either indigenous people, but indigenous, that's not really a United States culture. That's not, you know, that's, that's you know, United States culture is like come over, mm -hmm. but they have, you know, Apache culture and, you know, Caddo culture and, you know, and, and so they're, so there's that they have their own culture. But when you're looking at from the start of the United States, what is a truly American culture? And I think you get black culture, you know, because we are the only ones who really had to start from scratch and develop a culture on this, you know, in this landscape of the United States, mm -hmm. whereas other people were connected to their, you know, so I, I'd say like, so if you think about like things that we consider quintessentially American, right? So like hot dogs, hamburgers, those are things that are, you know, directly connected back, like very directly connected back to their European connections, you know, as far as sausages go and, you know, the way those, you know, foods are served. So, so, but when you're looking at things like barbecue and you're looking at things like the blues and you're looking at things like, you know, jazz and hip hop, those are things that came from the ground of the United States and, and the black American experience and created things that we consider a part of the American culture, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it, it is so rich and it's so important, but it's also, you know, it's so important to, to start that process of valuing, you know, that that humanity behind it, that reality behind it, not not as something that's, you know, entertainment, just entertainment. Just, yeah, yeah exactly. no, I think that's wonderful. You know? um, I think that's a really interesting perspective. Um, I did want to comment. Um, Elaine Locke, who was the father of the Harlem Renaissance, right, and of course W. E. Du Bois really. Uh, worked to begin uh, Pan-Africanism. And I know that your group that you're working with... Mm -hmm. uh, the Pan-African uh, Action Committee. Yeah. yeah, it's a great name, you know, it just has a lot of history behind it. And um, But Locke was um, uh, a philosopher of culture mm -hmm. and a philosopher that very much believed in the sense of race as a social construct, yeah. yes? He was also very good friends with uh, geneticist, famous and very important black American geneticist who was one of the first people to really break through the idea that we have singular mono kind of genetic race, right? We're really um, hybrids in, in so many ways. Um, but culturally is a whole different experience and identity, right? And so Locke said something that I kind of wanted to ask you about to end. And I think you might have already answered it, but I'm not quite sure. I'd like to hear more. Uh, Locke says, to be Negro in the cultural sense, then, is not to be radically different, but only to be distinctively composite and idiomatic, though basically American, as is to be expected, in the first instance. So... Locke thinks that the black culture is incredibly important, but then it pours back into American culture um, in a way that becomes common experience. Would you agree with that? Or yeah, I think that is that is like you know kind of the point. What I get from that quote is he's saying that 
the black experience is this composite of an identity um, that has, you know, to be pieced together like a like a quilt. But when he says to be American in the first instance, I think that's really, you know, I feel like what he's saying there is to be the the true American, to be, you know, the people who have, you know, been created these values of, you know, American culture that that had to be tasked to to take, you know, this project that was being this experiment. And to make it into an identity and make it into a culture because we had no other choice. We, you know, there was an an active and aggressive and 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 violent um, experience that stopped us from, you know, like maintaining those lines of of ancient history that some in some communities were able to keep. And I think those communities are, you know, so um, like invaluable. Like they they are treasures. Those those communities that that had the, the opportunity to keep those. So if you're looking at the Geechee culture in South Carolina or the, a lot of cultures in the West Indies or in Louisiana where you have those traces. Yeah, I'm from New from, Orleans. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like, so you have, and I think those are, that is like some of the most important like places to look at that connection. But then we're talking about the larger experience. So how would someone get involved or how would someone uh, find out a little bit more about what y'all are doing on campus in the San Marcos community to support um, our local African-American community? Um, So the Pan-African Action Committee, it's a student organization at Texas State University. We meet every Wednesday from 5 to 7 in Lampasas 500 in the Honest College. That's also the Multicultural Lounge and Black Students Resource Library that we set up. Um, One of the main things that we really focus on is producing that institutional change that, you know, especially on a college campus, we don't see and people seem to be so reluctant to in terms of, you know, uh, our first and main goal is to establish a black studies <laughs> and Latino studies program. So Latino studies um, is well on its way. Um, the black studies is in the works. Um, that was our first That's goal. That's good. You know, Elaine Locke, he um, started the first black studies program at Howard University. Yeah. So he's kind of good that we have him <laughs> as an interlocker. But go ahead. Your work is so incredibly important. Um, and so, yeah, so that's our first goal. But then also just looking at the, the injustices of our own campus being a student organization. So, you know, the, there's only about 5% black professors at this school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's and compared to the 10% of black students and most of those professors students aren't experiencing and aren't doing that so this is like a largely white ex- white educational experience that students are having um that's an issue that we're tackling we're tackling about um the way that you know foods are or students are treated in terms of the food they get and how hungry they are uh, long story short it's just about producing that change but also producing that cultural awareness so we mm-hmm. do a lot of different social events that um, promote that cultural awareness and promote engaging with these topics and and finding that personal power to to move forward and get to change our campus. That's the most important part is that as students, we get to set up multicultural lounges. We get to, because the school, when the administration won't do it, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just when we step in and we say, well, you know, where we can, we will, and where you won't, we'll make you, you know. And you do very good work. I, I see uh, the things that you're doing all over campus. You're very visible, which is a great, great thing uh, to have on the campus because a lot of people um, may not know about an organization like this. 
Um, do, do you have any events coming up mm -hmm. soon? Yeah, um, I think next Wednesday we have a wake-up call in LBJ Amphitheater. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just going to be, there'll be food. Um, it's just something where we try and have a presence, try and get that visible visibility out there, especially this early in the year. And we just play, you know, positive music um, to create an energy around the LBJ Amphitheater as people are studying and eating and whatever they're doing. Um, to enjoy themselves and, and, and to be able to produce that enjoyment. Um, we have um, game nights or game days in the Multicultural Lounge on Friday. The first one's going to be next Friday uh, at 12 in, the, in Land Passes 500. Mm -hmm. um, we have some dialogue series coming up. We're going to be working on a poetry night. There's a lot of different things. So we're not really, um, not all of those have exact dates and times yet, but... Just keep an eye out. Follow us on Twitter at Pan African awesome. Act. That's the best way to stay updated on our events and, and whatnot. Perfect. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, you know coming here, giving us your time, and uh, speaking with us today on these really really important topics. So thank you very much thank again. Thank you so much, mm -hmm. Deborah. Thanks for having me. Fascinating. So that concludes Philosophy Mixed for today. The Texas State Philosophy Dialogue Series continues on Monday with lectures on law enforcement and race relations, rational disagreement, caring democracy, nonviolent resistance, and more. We actually have Deputy Constable Mark Graves from the Hayes County uh, Police Department coming in. He's going to speak uh, at Comal 114 on monday the 16th at 11 a.m uh basically the topic is black lives blue lives and all lives and remember that on wednesday the dialogue series meets at the beautiful san marcus public library at 4 30 every week and that's where the dialogues are extended to the greater community and uh many thanks to joanne carson director of the philosophy dialogue series and to our guest tafari today for details on the events of of the dialogue series, check out the dialogue schedule on the Texas State Philosophy Department website. The next session of Dialogue Mixed will be a fascinating session on the body and culture. Uh, so this is basically going to be about uh, the way that our society treats uh, the human body and the way that the human body interacts with the world around us. So it's going to be very, very interesting. Yes, that's going to be fascinating. And we have a special independent scholar coming, Caroline Gnagny, who's written an interesting book on Texas jailhouse music and a prison band history. And she's going to um, talk to us about music liberating uh, the body even uh, in the circumstances of being a prisoner. Mm -hmm. Dr. Fleur Chevalier and uh, Craig Hanks will be uh, with me on the next uh, session of our podcast, Philosophy Mix. So definitely check that out on the KTSW blog, ktswblog.net. And thank you, Rebecca. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Thank you, Kimberly. Mm -hmm. Thanks for bringing this uh, to the public. Please get in touch with your comments and join us on the Philosophy Facebook page. And this has been Philosophy Mixed on KTSW 89.9. Thank you.